Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to how regenerative agriculture can nourish our bodies, rebuild our soil, and restore our future. Hey everyone, this is Taylor Collins and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is made possible by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Boy, oh boy, do we have a great episode for you guys today. So if you're new to this podcast, here's the deal. Every four or so episodes, I'm going to sit with my wife, Katie Forrest, and we're going to share our own stories, our own journey and our own experience as first generation land stewards. And we're going to dive specifically into a topic and then unpack it. And the greater intention here is to help you connect in a deeper and more profound way to the land on which we all depend and the animals that enrich those ecosystems. Now, today's podcast is about a true hero species here at Rome Ranch. These animals are the closest living descendants of dinosaurs. They debug our pastures. They scratch through the manure of our ruminant animals and spread that fertility into a greater radius. They also scratch it, capped and compacted topsoil that loosens it up and it allows seeds to germinate. It allows rainfall to better infiltrate. And then these animals are also breaking up the parasitic life cycle, thus making our bison herd healthier. And this is their story. Okay, I'm here with no one other than Katie Forrest. Hello, Katie Forrest. Hello. Katie Katie does her warm-up vocals like... What a praying mantis sounds like when it eats a fly's head off. Would you like me to demonstrate? No, we'll spare everyone. Are you sure? It's disgusting. It's disgusting. We saw a praying mantis eat the head off of a fly, house fly yesterday. And that's all I can think about. <laughs> it's horrible. Anyways, okay. Well, hey, Katie, I'm really happy to be back here with you. Um, and, you know, I think these stories from the ranch are really fun. I hope that people enjoy hearing them as much as we like rekindling them. But if nothing else, maybe one day our children can listen to these stories about the ranch. Yeah, that will become their memories yeah. because they are actually in a lot of these stories. Absolutely. So, you know, first go around, of course, we had to feature the bison. They're like the keystone species, the superheroes of the ranch. But this time we wanted to tell stories about poultry. Chickens, turkeys, ducks, peacocks. Geese. Geese. Don't forget about geese. And maybe even some native birds or some migratory birds. So this is like the poultry episode. So stories of Rome Ranch and our journey and our experience with all those monogastric birds. I'm already sad that we only have an hour because I feel like this could be like an entire day's worth of stories. Yeah, we could definitely tell a whole story day on peacocks alone, but I narrowed it down to some classics, okay, some tried and true. And so the first thing that I think is really important for people to hear about, you know, it's like, where do the poultry at a ranch come from? Where do the chickens at Rome Ranch come from and the turkeys and the ducks and the geese? Well, it might surprise you to know that we order them in the mail. And this is very common. This is typically how it's done. 
You order it on a website, and um, when the eggs hatch in a nursery out of an incubator, they are packaged and put in the mail. And it's not even like FedEx or UPS. It's USPS mail. Snail mail. Snail freaking mail. And um, they're put in a tiny box as a day-old chick. and With like little holes so they can breathe and there's airflow. Yeah, and and the, supposedly, you know, they eat enough, they have enough nourishment inside their egg. They eat the membrane of the egg and they can sustain their own lives for about three days. But I don't know if that's true or not, because it seems like every single time that they actually arrive at the post office and then the lady calls us and says, you got some ducks here. And then we go pick them up and it's just like the most exciting moment ever is to open that top. But there's been either pure joy or absolute full of tears sorrow from absolute carnage of death. Yeah. Can you? And so, I mean, going back to that, it's so weird to have someone from USPS even call your phone and tell you that they don't deliver it to your house. No, no, no. You got to go pick it up. Yeah, exactly. And they call you at like five in the morning when the truck freaking gets there. They're on the lookout for any kind of box that has a living animal in it. And then they call your ass and they tell you to get up there immediately because they know it's a race against the clock. You got to get those suckers out of the box and you need to get them into some clean bedding and um, put some heat lamps on them. Oh, they need I mean, I don't even know. I mean, depending on what time of year it is, either. I mean, we've seen them die from cold like a cold spell that's rolled through and they can't make it without a heat lamp in the post office yeah it's it's just the weirdest world it feels like it should be illegal it feels like it's black market that you're just ordering day-old chicks in the mail and then they get shipped to you yeah yeah no it doesn't feel right yeah but that's that's how that's how it's traditionally done unless you are incubating and hatching your own eggs which we are doing this year, and I love doing it. What do you think about it? Uh, I love hate it. We can get into that later. Okay. It's definitely the way to optimize your experience with poultry. Oh, for sure. Because, yeah, like Katie was saying, when they come in the mail, they are typically hanging on to dear life. You might have a couple of hours that are like the critical moment, whether that thing is going to live or die, and it's directly represented by what happens next and how quickly you can get them out of that box yeah so um that's nuts most people don't know that but that's the truth okay um so when you get poultry out on your ranch you got to keep them alive and there's different ways to keep them alive once you put them on pasture you know it is hard because everything wants to kill a chicken everything loves the taste of small poultry animals so, you know, we early on bought two Apex Predator guardian dogs named Carnage and Savage. Carnage and Savage was their first name. And you remember why we gave them such ferocious names? Yeah, we gave them the names Carnage and Savage so nobody would touch them or, or, or look at them. We wanted everybody to be so afraid of them that they, that they were completely distanced from them strictly on their name alone. Yeah, so that's really scary names. Like, who wants to pet a dog named Carnage or Savage? You'll probably get bitten, and they probably have rabies and fleas. <laughs> and so, and so we named them that. And the conventional wisdom with livestock guardian dogs is, like Katie said, 
They are not pets. They're working animals. You do not even look at them in the eyes. You do not pet them. You do not talk to them sweetly because if you do, you'll quote unquote ruin them immediately. I mean, Will Harris told us that. Yeah. And Will Harris is, I mean, that guy knows his shit. Whatever Will Harris says, I'm buying. Totally. So that was Will Harris's advice. And it didn't work out very well for us because our livestock guardian dogs rebelled. They were like angry teenagers when they were young. Yeah. So we have great Pyrenees and Anatolian shepherd mixes and they're sisters. So Carnage and Savage are sisters. They're like um, genuinely the sweetest, most loving two sisters that have ever existed. And I think the problem was, is like we, we got the um, last two of the litter. So we got the ones that had been with their mom and then the breeder, the longest. And so like that lady was petting those dogs and giving them treaties and loving on them hard. So when they showed up here and we were like, don't look at them, that was a problem. Yeah. They, that was a mistake. They rebelled. And that rebellion phase was was horrible. I remember them killing at least one, sometimes two chickens a day for what seemed to be over an entire year. For sure. Um, I mean, and there were so many things that we tried. I mean, we tried like putting the chickens in a net away from them and then putting them in a deeper... uh, What would you say? Like electric pin away from the poultry, but it didn't even matter. No matter what, they had they had killed a chicken a day at least. Yeah, scruffing them didn't work. I mean, disciplining whenever they were eating the dead chicken, it was like you'd come up to them in real time feedback and correct them, and they they were just so sorry, but they couldn't help themselves. (laughs) Maybe it was like positive negative reinforcement. We were we were like yelling at them but they were like oh my god someone's talking to us this is the most wonderful (laughs) feeling ever i'm gonna kill another chicken tomorrow and you know it's like that's their one dog i mean that's their one job on the ranch it's like we bought you and we feed you and we sustain your life so that you protect the chickens that's all you have to do and then they were the ones killing all the chickens yeah, it was a real tragedy. i remember i mean i always sort of had a bigger heart for them than you at the beginning And then there was, I forgot what happened, but one day I was like, you know what, Taylor, just get the rifle and just go kill them immediately. Right now. They made made, made me really mad. I remember that what happened was it was like um, maybe a week or two before Thanksgiving and they attacked our turkeys and they they like ripped them apart. Yeah. And it was just like unbelievable. Final straw. And even before that, I remember, do you remember on Thanksgiving day when the sheriff came up to our ranch? I do. And the dogs got arrested. <laughs> dogs have a criminal record. They broke out of the property. They went on a vision quest and they ran onto a neighbor's property where an old man um, was teaching his grandson how to deer hunt, whitetail hunt, which is like a sacred rite of passage in Texas. And these dogs run into the field and chase the whitetail away. And the old man, I mean, I can't believe he didn't shoot the dogs. He threatened to shoot them. But he somehow wrangled him up, caught him, threw him in a trailer, and then the sheriff came and arrested them, mm-hmm. booked the dogs, <laughs> and then came and found us. Which so these dogs, I mean, they were a mess. And then there was this turning point where we were at, we were at our wits end, you know, like um, we didn't know what to do, and so we decided to do the one thing that Will Harris said not to do: touch them, touch them, look at them. Yeah, talk sweetly to them, whisper 
poetry into their ears, brush them. Sweet talk them. Sweet talk them. And, um, and then a really important part of the change in management was the change of their names. That was like the monumental day that we really decided to change how we, how our relationship was with those dogs. Yeah. Well, Scout, our daughter was always, I don't want to say afraid of them. I mean, but they were big dogs. So she was never really interested in them because they always would run up to her really excited. And she was always like, not really pumped. But, um, the day that she could start talking, not the day, but you know, like shortly after she could start talking, she, she was trying to say carnage and savage. And she ended up saying cabbage as savage cabbage. And we were like, Oh, what a cute name. Cabbage. This seems to fit. And then the other one was always seen walking around with a a huge carcass in its mouth, whether it be a bison carcass or a deer carcass. And so we ended up just being like cabbage and carcass Mm -hmm. instead of carnage and savage cabbage and carcass. No, it's carcass and cabbage. I still call them the carns. And yeah, we're interchangeable. You just call them carns or you just call them both carcass or both Mm -hmm. savage or whatever. They have so many names, but the most lovely part of this story is Whenever we started adoring those dogs and sweet talking them and giving them lots of love and pets on their belly, they turned into the finest specimens of livestock guardian dogs. They stopped killing the chickens like immediately. They stopped killing the turkeys. They don't mess with cats, peacock, nothing. No. And and that like the highlight of their their life is whenever we have a ranch tour and we drive out into the poultry field and we're showing everyone the, the chickens or the turkeys and then the dogs come out and they just immediately go subordinate and lay on their backs and just ask for belly pets. And then like 40 strangers pet their bellies. Yeah, this episode has went from poultry to dog episode. No, quickly. I mean these dogs are a part of the a critical part of the poultry operation. You can't have pasture raised poultry without some kind of livestock guardian. Yeah, so they protect on the ground, but they they're also aerial protectors too. Like they they're really good at spotting hawks and um, owls, and and you know they'll chase off ravens from eating our duck eggs and the whole nine yards. They they they're badass. They are total badass. And um, they have a backup crew. Like, you know, I think they're highly effective at, like you said, um, mammals like coyotes, skunks, bobcats, raccoons, porcupines, you know, like that that's their sweet spot. They can kick those animals asses all day, even though they don't actually hurt anything. They're the type of livestock guardian dog that just barks. So they stay with the flock. They don't run away and try to hurt anything. They just intimidate through bark um but we have a backup crew and those animals are the geese the livestock guardian geese and these things are super sick and mean they don't have names but we raised christmas geese our first year here at the ranch and we held back three of the meanest biggest gnarliest ones and they are assholes they're honkers yeah, they're they're hissers. I've seen these things nip at our dog's rear end quite a few times, and she is just so startled by it. Yeah, these things, I mean, think about it. I feel like everyone has a traumatic experience with geese. If you ever went to a public park and there were geese there, you know what we're talking about. Like, you just don't even want to make eye contact with them. No, no, no. They spread their wings. Their their neck goes down. They got their tongue, their little, like, slivery tongue going. <laughs> yeah. And their teeth are 
serrated and like reversed and they're just ass kickers. And so they back up carcass and cabbage. Yeah. Yeah. They got their backs. When carcass and cabbage are napping, they for sure take over. Yeah. And the geese sleep on the ground too. And so they're just so damn big after they get um, large enough to be hard to kill. You know, they'll just sleep on the ground underneath the chickens, underneath the turkeys, and there's no predators messing with them. And so that's some words of wisdom. If anyone is thinking of getting into, you know, livestock, obviously poultry is a really good non-intimidating way to test the water. You know, it's a great way to learn. And your biggest challenge is going to be keeping your birds alive out on pasture. And so if livestock guardian dogs aren't a part of the equation, get some uh, livestock guardian geese because they are so effective. But don't get me wrong. Like we have definitely lost animals to predators. Um, the only predators, can you guess, that we have ever lost chicken or or turkeys to? I'm guessing that you can guess. <laughs> I can definitely guess. And it's not what, it's not who you think. No skunks, no bobcats, no. no coyotes. We smell skunks in the morning, but yeah. no dead animals. So the dogs usually get sprayed right in the face, but they already smell so terrible that it's actually helpful. The great horned owl. Great horned owl. The night predator. The silent killer. So every, you know, predator species that will kill a pastured poultry animal has like this signature kill. And if you're like a detective on a crime TV show or something, you know, if an animal is decapitated and its body is just lifeless underneath where it was sleeping and its head was carried away, that's like the signature kill of a great horned owl. And then sometimes the head will just be, you know, 10 feet away and the great horned owl will just have like picked out, you know, the brain, the eyeballs. Yeah. The esophagus or just like a little bit of entrails. And I mean, that's it. But these things are insane. They are truly stealth apex predators. When they fly, they don't make a single noise. Their wings don't kick up any air that's in an audible way. So our last round of turkeys that we had, um, we put them out on pasture after the brooder house, maybe a little too early, but we didn't really have a choice. Like circumstantially, it needed to happen. And so we, you know, the, the first night there was just like a dead turkey and we were like, oh, that sucks. I guess something got it. The next night there were like two and the next night there were three. And then suddenly I was like starting to do some math and I was like, by the time that Thanksgiving happens. If this continues, we will be negative 30 turkeys. We got to figure this out. So Taylor goes and gets a game cam, puts it out on like a T post or something. I think you had to get like three game cans because you were trying to do it from all angles. Turns out there were, I don't know how many great horned owls. Oh, about four. There were four. And it was so insane. They would literally perch up like right next to the turkey perching on its perch. And just kind of like look at it and then it would go slay something on the ground just because it would it would be like a faster hit, I imagine. But yeah, they can fly like 35 miles an hour and they have razor blade talons. Right. And so they just fly silently and decapitate a turkey. Just can you imagine being the turkey next to the turkey that got decapitated? You would just be shivering. Yeah. Shivering all night. Yeah. 
You would shit your pants. Yeah. So what we tried to do, we were like, okay, well, it, circumstantially, the, the the guardian dogs couldn't be where these turkeys were because we needed them in this particular area where they didn't have access to. So we went to, I don't know, Wally World or somewhere that Taylor hates and got some, it was around, it was, um, it was Halloween-ish. And we got these Halloween strobe lights and we put them all around all the coops in hopes, well, that it would deter the, the great horned owls. Turns out it did not. It was just like this party. It was like a rave over at the turkeys. Yeah, it was like a killing rave with all the strobe lights. Yeah, it was. It was they, the owls actually liked it. Yeah. It got really weird out there. And man, I'm telling you, you know, we love predator species. They have a role in the ecosystem. And you're never going to eat a weak turkey from our ranch because those turkeys didn't make it to adulthood, right? Because the predators, they always eat the weaker animal or the sick animal. And so that resonates with how we raise our food and our spirit and the energy that we want to consume and feed to our friends and family and community. But, um, you know, the problem, I think, with the great horned owls is like just the disproportionate amount of poultry producers that are raising their animals outside. If, if all of our neighbors, everyone in our community shared in that burden of feeding great horned owls, well, it would be spread out. The losses would be spread. We could manage it. But if we're the only people in, you know, Gillespie County serving up Turkey every night. Yeah. Feeding the great horned owl population. I mean, it was crazy. I would go outside at night and 365 degrees around me. I would hear great horned owls hooting. And I just was like, oh, God, we're going to wake up in the morning and we're going to just find dead turkeys everywhere. <sighs> but the good news about turkeys is truly once they hit the maturation level where they're able to fly and to roost in trees, man, they're hard to kill because we're not raising commodity animals here. We're raising really resilient, smart heritage breed animals. They're descendants of wild birds. And so it's like after they're about three months old. Nothing can kill these turkeys. Not not even the great horned owls. The great horned owls just they pass on them and then they move back to like field mice and stuff like that. So the the happy part of this story is eventually the turkeys got old enough. No, you know what we had to do? We had to actually park their coops in trees. Yeah. And then and the trees were like the protection the, and in bushes. Yeah. So they couldn't get speed to murder. Yep. And then they just got big. They stacked gains. And they were big enough to not to get killed every single night. I mean, but ultimately, I feel like it's still pretty special that you got to hear um, 360 surround sound, great horned owl noises. Oh, I love that. I mean, that's really, really kind of special. Yeah, it was it was beautiful. I love them here. Um, okay. And so this kind of transitions to, since we're on the story of turkeys, it's just, you know, one of like the most coolest parts of our ranch you know, just to back up, we raise anywhere from 300 to 500 heritage breed turkeys every year. And we raise them for Thanksgiving and we have these community Thanksgiving field harvest events that are just so special. But, um, you know, a couple of years ago when we did this, we started noticing wild Rio Grande turkeys coming to our ranch and coming out and living within our flock of heritage birds. And that's like the ultimate honor because that's, Essentially, you know, they have these like wild, 100% wild birds selecting. They could be anywhere they want and they're choosing to be 
on your ranch. They're choosing to be with your birds. I always took that as like a sign that our management was was good enough, actually really good that they wanted to be there. They had resources, they had food, they had habitat, and they had lots of ladies. So many ladies. And it's really only the males that have ever come to our ranch. The female hens, the wild hens, they stay away. Um, but the male hens are the ones that show up. And it actually, I don't, I, I don't know, I like love, hate it. It makes... It makes um, the tours kind of awkward because the wild turkey males are badass. They are far superior than even our heritage breed turkeys who are really resilient. Um, But during the breeding season, which basically starts at the beginning of the year and is kind of coming to an end now, all the toms do is fight. All they do all day, literally all day is fight and follow around hens. And so... Our heritage breed birds look like complete shit because these wild birds came in and have basically kicked their asses for hours and hours and hours a day. So then they look amazing. They look like pristine. Their tail feathers are gorgeous. But our birds look like ass. And it's embarrassing if you don't understand what's happening. Like if you have no context and you show up here and you're looking at our turkeys, you'd be like, what the fuck, you guys? What happened to these birds? Yeah. Looks like they got in a tornado. Yeah. I mean, like tail feathers that are not there. Wonky. Chest feathers that are no longer there. Yeah. They have like welts on their snoods because they're getting picked by the wild ones. Yeah. It's like a gang war. Straight up gang war. Yeah. Bloods and Crips. But no, not even that. It's like it's like the Bloods versus um like a kindergarten gang. <laughs> like that has a tree house and they have a sign outside that's like no girls allowed. Oh. That is that is the disparity. That is how much of a gap there is in the skill set of these warriors. Yeah. And so you know, but again, I come back to this idea where it's it's a little bit brutal to watch, but the outcome of it, you know, everything in nature has a reason. And when these animals are out on pasture, the ones that are getting their asses kicked, well, they have plenty of room to escape. They kind of get kicked out of the flock. They can go roost in a tree all by themselves. And what what happened, the byproduct is that we get really special genetics. So like our eggs that are, well, our females that are fertilized here, they are having the most badass males pass on their most resilient, most adapted genetics to our region. And then the offspring is like these incredible birds that are half heritage breed and half wild. And that's just really special because those birds have a better chance of surviving out on pasture facing all the elements of our ecosystem. And so it's a really cool story. And um, I don't know, I I love having those wild birds here. I wish that everybody could experience what it's like to have turkeys. But because they can't, I'm going to interrupt the show to say that everybody needs to go to PBS right now, PBS online, and watch this show. Or it's it's like a 45-minute documentary. It's called My Life as a Turkey. And it is the most beautiful story that you will ever hear slash watch. You will be crying at the end. This guy, he incubates these wild turkey eggs and like becomes their mom. Like he's definitely their mom. They imprint on him hard. He's, he's like chirping at the eggs. He's turning them. 
once they hatch, he's obviously the mom because they're the first things that he see that they see. And he lives with turkeys. And I mean lives like sleep, you know, will go and teach them how to perch on a branch and then he sleeps on the branch that night. Like it is nuts and so beautiful. Please go watch that right now. Just stop the podcast. Go do that. Go see it. And the other um, secret that we're going to tell you that you've never heard or never thought about in your life is that um, if you want to eat the best turkey you've ever had in a life, that you've ever had in your life, you need to eat a hen, not a tom. Everyone, all these American people, and we're Americans too, got all these freaking Americans, fat Americans, they just want to eat really big birds. But they don't give a shit about flavor. Yeah. And so when you eat really big birds, two things. One, you are buying commoditized industrialized birds that are bred for one reason which is to get fat as fast as possible as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible at the sacrifice of everything else all the flavor all the nutrition all the welfare for the animal all the benefits to the land it just goes to shit but when you raise these heritage birds just for perspective there's only 30,000 of these birds on the planet and there's 30 no 300 million double-breasted butterball turkeys. Those are the industrial ones eaten a year in the United States. And so the difference between the two is night and day. I mean, when you eat one of our turkeys that have lived every single day on the pasture, foraging for their resources, I mean, these things are like, like the meat is red. Even the breast meat is red. Yeah, it's not white meat. It's red. It looks like venison or bison. And then the amount of fat that's on a hen is... A smaller hen, right? These things only get to be like 8 to 12 pounds typically. I mean, we're harvesting sometimes 5-pound birds. Yeah, 5-pound hens, right? And so the toms will get bigger. But the hens, like Katie already said, the toms fight all day long. They're just kicking each other's asses. So they're super lean. The meat is very, very tough. Um, The hens, however, they're just trying to get away from the toms for the most part. And so they have lots of subcutaneous fat. Um, They're very tender, very moist. And they're just the best bird you've ever eaten in your life. I love spatchcocking them and grilling them. Or sometimes for Thanksgiving, we'll actually just make carnitas. Mm -hmm. Just put them in a crock pot and then take the meat off with all the fat and we'll shred it up in a cast iron skillet, heat at high heat. And then it's just the best eating you've ever had. Since we started raising turkeys, I have actually started to enjoy Thanksgiving. I used to hate Thanksgiving. I used to make my mom go to the Chinese restaurant that was open on Thanksgiving and buy me Chinese food because I hated turkey so much because it was so bland and dry and flavorless. Yeah. Most people have never had a real, a wild turkey or heritage breed turkey, but they are worth every single penny. And, and so since we kind of started going into talking about, uh, weak, flavorless, nutritional void, birds i think it's a good point to pivot back to chickens and mm-hmm. you know there's something insane like 99.9 percent of every chicken that you've ever eaten in your life has likely been a cornish cross hen mm-hmm. that's like the um, the industrialized commoditized chicken and these things are insane they go from birth to harvest in as little as four to six weeks So think about that. This animal lives for sometimes six weeks before it's killed. You guys should read this book called Big Chicken. I think the author's name is Martin McKenna. 
Um, and it, you know, it, it talks about the history of the Cornish cross bird, how we got to this place in our, in our, um, society to where we are exclusively consuming this thing. And it started like at a, um, a chicken breeding contest, like in the forties. Yeah. These things are insane. They, you know, again, they are bred for one reason, which is to get big as cheaply as possible, as quickly as possible at the expense of all else. And so these animals do not do well outside on pasture. You know, in the industrial setting, they have to be in barns. They are given antibiotics at a subtherapeutic level just so that they can stay alive. And the problem with these animals is they get so big so quickly that they're unable to stand. They're unable to walk. Um, they get bow legs or their organs will fail by the time, but even before they're mature. That's why they have to be harvested early on. Whereas, you know, if you're looking at like a heritage bird for perspective, you know, that could be anywhere from like 12 weeks to 24 weeks to get that thing to finished weight. So that's a lot more time. But that slow growth has everything to do with flavor and everything to do with the ability of that meat to sequester and to hold minerals and vitamins and all that desirable flavor and fat. And so these Cornish crossbirds are just pathetic, so weak. And we wanted to, you know, our first batch of birds, we thought, hey, this would be a really cool experiment if we got a couple Cornish cross birds and then we got some Freedom Rangers, which the Freedom Rangers are like these pasture adapted broiler chickens that, I mean, and their name is just so badass. <laughs> they love freedom. They love freedom and they love They're ranging. ranging. And so we kind of like raised them side by side and we documented the differences you know, from start to finish. And it was startling it what was, happened. It was pretty rough doing this experiment in the first place because, you know, like, you know you're doing something and it feels so wrong instinctually, um, but you have to, like, finish your experiment. So these birds were, we got them in pretty much the same day, I would say. Um, and we put them in like a range coop type situation. This was before we were doing straight free range pasture raise. So this was like a range coop where, you know, like the range coop gets moved every single day. Oh my God, this brings up so many stories in my mind. Remember when the range coop got, um, hmm. tornadoed and it basically flipped over Yeah, 5,000 pound range coop flipped yeah. over a high fence. Yeah, that was great. Um, Anyway, so we put these birds in this pasture uh, system and um, immediately you could see the difference between these two, these two breeds. The Cornish crosses would literally sit at a feeder, like not even stand, sit, lay down, lay down at the feeder and eat food all day long. Yeah. That's it. They're like little kids that play video games all day long. And eat, and eat hot pockets hot pockets. all day long and yell at their mom to go heat them up one more heat them up another one or bring them a diet coke not even a diet what no, am i no, talking no. about those cornish crosses want coke with vanilla syrup in it <laughs> um and these animals don't you get know, me wrong i mean they're beating hearts they're souls they're like living entities yeah, so they like didn't i choose to be cornish crosses. choose to be a cornish cross so like so we do have Peace sympathy them. for them yeah, and respect for them. And that's why, you know, we, we, we raised them till they were finished, but it was hard because, you know, these Cornish crosses were at this point where, you know, towards the end of their life, they had sores 
you know, bare spots on the underside of, of their breast, for example, and their belly because they just laid all day. And they, while they were laying, the Freedom Rangers would be pecking at them yeah. like savages. The pecking order is a real thing. It happens in all birds, but it's just how they work out dominance and a hierarchy and a social structure. And it's very apparent that the Freedom Rangers were the alphas. Very much so. They would quite literally be eating them alive. Yeah. While they the Cornish Crosses would be just eating. And as long as lunch. the Cornish Cross had hot pockets and video games in front of it, it did not mind getting eaten alive. It was rough. It was embarrassing. Everything about it was awful. <laughs> yeah. If when when these coops would get moved too, so we would move the coop every day and the Freedom Rangers would know like, "Oh yeah, I've done this before. I'm gonna scoot my ass along." The Cornish Cross, on the other hand, would get like scooped out the back, to, and the, it like just get basically run over. Yeah, it was tough. It was awful. Um, and the Cornish Crosses did get bigger, and they did have a more efficient feed to weight gain ratio. You know, they were cheaper to raise, but the quality of the meat too. When we harvested these animals, I mean, the Freedom Rangers were the best chicken i've ever had in my life mm -hmm. they were so delicious it was probably the first time in our lives maybe we haven't eaten a cornish cross mm -hmm. and they were so good so tender so fatty and so moist so full of flavor and rich and the cornish crosses were just like this kind of blank canvas that you just had to add seasoning to lots of butter lots of herbs ketchup yeah we, did, we didn't do ketchup maybe when we were kids but <laughs> I, was, I was thinking i was yeah, that was my childhood go-to because chicken didn't taste like anything. Yeah, and so that's just uh, some information that maybe people didn't know. If you if you like chicken, you're probably eating Cornish Cross hens, even if you're shopping at you know national natural grocery store retailers. And so um, the Freedom Rangers, you know, you can buy those or other pasture raised heritage type birds directly from smaller local producers. But if you go to the farmers market, you should just ask your poultry person what type of bird they're raising. And if it's not a Cornish cross, you should buy it <laughs> and support them. And if it is a Cornish cross, you should just ask them about it. Because, you know, there's nothing wrong. If that's within your context, you know, I think raising chickens is really hard enterprise. Yeah, I don't wish it that sucks. on anybody. I mean, it is one of the most commoditized industries out there. And people expect, you know, like you can literally go to HEB or Whole Foods I don't know the price difference between the two, but I know that you can buy like a completely cooked and seasoned rotisserie chicken for like $6. And we can't seem to raise a bird breaking even completely raw whole bird for like $23. Yeah. And so, so I, any, I, guess, I mean, we would have to sell with birds at cost just so somebody would buy it. Yeah. And so two things about that one, when we raise birds we do sell them at cost and we have to we have to think about the other added value of those birds as fertilizer machines mm -hmm. right like they're impacting our pastures in a positive way they're debugging they're scratching they're adding tons of nitrogen to our system so they have other unintended well actually those are intended benefits and so we receive those costs and we sell the animals at cost because otherwise no one would buy them. But my second point is I don't want to discourage or despair people who are raising Cornish cross hens, especially if they're doing it on pasture. Because I think 
Or like in the in a silva pasture like tree setting. Yeah, to even be slightly competitive with this industrial commoditized market, it's impossible to do it with a slow growth bird. It's just hard. And so Nothing's impossible. I don't uh it's never been done before. I don't know if it's never been done. I think it's just a niche market. Like you have to find somebody that places value upon the things that you are doing. So- I agree. But I'm just saying you're never going to find a heritage slow growth bird anywhere as inexpensive as a Cornish cross. Right. Like you're not going to find a heritage breed um, rotisserie chicken for $6.99 at Whole Foods. Ever. That's what I'm saying has never been done Ever. before. That has never been done. And so Correct. I'm saying in order to, like, there's like, it doesn't have to be heritage breed, pasture raised, free range, regenerative, or conventional or- industrial Cornish cross. Yeah. There's something in the middle. And that's worth exploring. Even if it's Cornish cross on pasture. And I know that there's producers trying to, you know, bridge that gap. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Okay, we're going to take a break right now and go eat some Cornish cross. Mm. (laughs) Catch up. Hey, champions. I hope you guys are enjoying our stories from the ranch. This couldn't be possible without the love and the support of Force of Nature. So head over to forceofnature.com and have regeneratively sourced meats shipped to your door anywhere in the continental United States. And if all this talk about slow growth chickens is making you salivate, well, Force of Nature has you covered. They sell a next level slow growth heritage breed bird that's a combination of a Transylvania naked neck, a Delaware, and a Peterson family line from the 1940. These heirloom pioneer birds were selected for leg strength, bone density, immune health, propensity to explore outdoors, as well as their own gastrointestinal health. Because they're slow growth and active and raised on pasture means the flavor is ridiculous and the vitamins and the minerals are present you guys are going to love these chickens so head over to forceofnature.com and see what we're talking about in this show it's perfect timing this is everything we're discussing and more so head over to forceofnature.com and see what real chicken tastes like all right so we need to revisit some lessons and morals and share those valuable nuggets with people because that's what this is all about um i think the first one right now is that chickens are just the best gateway drug into ranching and farming yeah you can get a chicken and it's relatively oh i was about to say relatively hard to kill but actually there's a lot of things that want to kill it but um you know they they give you an egg they you can always kill them and eat them i mean it's just it's a nice animal like composters yeah. They they eat your chicken, your kitchen scraps. Your chicken scraps. Yeah. And they're fun to feed ha- happy hens to and other worms. They'll True. debug your gardens. True. Mm, they'll also eat all your shit, but geese are really good debuggers for your garden. Okay. So they'll debug your yard. Yeah. And they add fertility to your yard, which is really nice. And I think they're also really valuable because they just inherently they want to scratch. And so they obviously like to scratch bare soil over covered soil. It's a little bit easier. And that helps break up cap top soil and helps rainfall infiltrate. And, you know, water getting in, percolating, allows more 
green plants to germinate and to grow when you get rain. So what's up? Chickens are where it's at. Yeah, but I feel like you can also way overdo chickens. I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, well, I mean, like the more the better, but it's really not the more the better. Chickens are also pretty destructive. And so, I mean, they could pretty much desertify your yard if you have too many of them pretty quickly. Yeah, and this is a a bigger issue too, but to that kind of like that natural degrading behavior of chickens on lands without proper management. Do you think chickens are regenerative? Oh, damn. Uh, Depends. Depends. Of course, uh, animals within a properly managed ecosystem can always be regenerative. But there's just like so many issues surrounding chickens. I mean, it's like chickens aren't even supposed to really be on pasture. Like chickens are supposed to be in like rangeland areas where there's trees. Like Yeah, they're jungle fowl, right? Yeah, they're jungle fowl. Like they need to be with, they need a perch. They want to be on trees. So this idea that chickens should be pasture raised, I mean, like obviously pasture raised is better than barn raised, but is it really expressing their biological needs if they truly want to be in trees yeah the the one the biggest criticism with monogastrics like chickens turkeys ducks geese pigs pigs and this whole idea of whether or not they're regenerative it's when people really start deconstructing regeneration because i always thought well they're definitely regenerative because they're enriching and they're healing the landscape on which they roam free duh but then you have to consider the other, the inputs. Yeah. And, and I don't think there's many people that are growing their own chicken feed. Regeneratively. Regeneratively. I mean, like, I don't think, I think the number of people growing their own chicken feed is like far and few between, but then like on top of that, people growing their own chicken feed regeneratively is probably non-existent at this point. Yeah. So if you are enriching your landscape, restoring it, building soil, but at the expense of degrading someone else far off with, uh, you know, that plant-based monoculture seed growing system. Is that regenerative? Probably not. Probably not. No. So that's, that's the big debate there. And that's something that people are working on trying to figure out. But right now there's really not an example of that at scale, but I digress. Um, okay. Let's talk about other stories that have happened here with monogastrics with birds. And I would definitely say the most provocative one is the journey of our peacocks. Oh, those peacocks. I mean, this is probably going to get us cancel cultures coming right after us. I can't wait. Someone's going to rage. I was raging. I raged. Yeah, this story is... But I was allowed to. Like, I have context and it's my, my peacock. Yeah. I'll just start off by saying people will ask us, What's the most hardcore, resilient, badass animal on Rome Ranch? And it is 100% not the bison. They are what you would expect. They're amazing. But it is the freaking peacocks. Can you believe that? Um, so again, peacocks, jungle fowl. I'll just go back to the start. So we we got, I got six peacocks. Well, I guess they're peafowls because they're females. Well, actually, they were unsexed. So I bought six peafowl and they came in the mail they old hatchlings why did we want these 
Well, because when we first moved out to the ranch, we were really afraid of snakes. Oh, right, right. Rightfully right. Okay. so. Uh, we didn't want our tiny ch- children who just crawl around in the dirt to get bitten in the face by a rattlesnake. That would have sucked. I didn't want you to get bitten by a rattlesnake. Um, and so we got these jungle fowl who had this badass reputation for hunting reptiles. And they're just going to stay in our yard, keep the keep the venomous, undesirable snakes away. That was the idea. So, I love how you say yard, like there's a yard. Like it is just like open land. Yeah, the our yard, I would say, is the area by our house. Yeah, okay. That we walk back and forth. And um, so we bought, the, we bought these pea. You're only fowl. allowed to buy six at a time. Like they're like, sorry, you can't have one. You can't have two. You have to have six. Yeah. So then we were stuck with six. And it's the minimum threshold for them to ship them. They're unsexed and they're $50 each. Which is a really bad deal. That's terrible. That's it. I mean, golly, whoever's selling those things probably banking. Yeah. Back up the Brinks truck. <laughs> they, um, so they showed up these $50 day old, peafowl and uh we put them in our brooder house which is like this converted outdoor barn and they've got a pretty good life they're really expensive so we're taking really good care of them watching them very closely but early on they start disappearing and so it was so weird it was like they're pretty small they're pretty athletic you know two weeks after getting them there was now only five it's like what the hell where's the hole in this Bruder house. How'd that thing possibly get out? Well, a month later, there was four. I'm like, shit, what is going on? Are these things magic? <laughs> then four weeks later, there was three. And it just made no sense. I think I was pretty sure that our ranch, um, ranch hands at the time were just... Leaving the door open or... Yeah, like just spacing out and, and maybe one like jumped in their pocket and they didn't even realize it and it went free range commando. Anyways, they kept, kept losing them every four weeks or so. And then one day we walked in there and there was two and we're like, good God, if I can do the math right now, each one of these things costed us $150. And there was also a snake in there. I think four times five is no, 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 no. See, it's easy math. There's Six of them, that was $300. Now I, there's two of them. So $400 was missing. No, I never spent $400. It was $300. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, just only listen to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we had now... I thought they were $50 each. $150. Oh, that's 200 Okay. Because they all died. Sorry. Okay. And so they're really expensive and we go in the coop and there's a freaking rat snake and the rat snake, these things are pretty big now. And so the rat snake is so fat with a baby pea fowl in its belly that it can't escape the coop. So it's stuck. Like, it's stuck on the inside of the coop because it can't busted. get back through. You got caught, buddy. And so we love predator insects, uh, predator mammals, predator birds, predator snakes. So we let that fellow go, but he ate all of our peahens. Now we only had two and they were really special. We were like, all right, well, they're cream of the crop. We don't even want the four that weren't adapted enough to avoid a snake. These are like the most badass Navy SEAL peacocks ever. 
we thought they were so special. And so we stupidly purchased, not purchased, we built, we built them this bad ass coop, like in our, I would, in our yard, quote unquote yard. It was amazing. I would have lived in it. It was, it was really, really freaking special. Um, and so they could learn to like stay in our area. So we built them this coop that they were going to stay in for, I don't know, what do we say? Six weeks. Cause they were still pretty small. Six months. Yeah. Six months. Oh, big difference. So they stayed in it for six months. And then we were like, this is now your home. Obviously now you're big enough to go outside without getting eaten by a rat snake. And we let them out and I feel like they disappeared almost immediately. I don't remember it that way at all. I think they went all the way to scout camp at no. night. No. They they imprinted on our yard for six months. I know, but and I... And then they were like, this is our fucking yard. This isn't y'all's yard. <laughs> okay. And, I mean, immediately we started having problems because these things had attitudes. And some of their worst behaviors were, A, they thought the porches of our house were their toilets. Yeah, like their litter boxes. Yeah. I mean, they just took like massive 25 shits a day and they were (laughs) horrendous, like diarrhea shits on our porch. And we would step in them. Our kids would step in them. It was horrible. And, you know, that sucked. Um, But we just tried everything to get them off the porch. I used to, I got like a paintball gun and I would shoot them with paintball gun and, you know, we'd crack a whip we chase them throw shoes at them i mean and then but water guns water guns yeah super soaker you remember those things yeah and so what what happened i never heard this expression but one day someone came over and they were like oh look look at that peacock over there it's as vain as a peacock i'm like what that is a peacock and they're like yeah no you never heard that expression and our house on the porches we have all these windows and so they would just sit on the porch, staring at themselves in the window. They loved it. That was their yeah. favorite part of all. It was their, their reflection. Yeah, they loved to look at themselves. They were so vain. And that was the that's where the expression comes from. Yeah, but anyways. They, so that's why they loved our porches, because they loved, it was a mirror. They loved themselves. Yeah. They just loved watching themselves take shits. <laughs> and so that was really just like the first straw. All right, we can handle this. A little bit of collateral damage, pretty nasty, but we can do this. But then they started roosting on our cars and trucks. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you should see Katie's car. It's so fucked. It's horrible. I mean, we like never had nice cars growing up. We shared a freaking Prius pretty much up until like five years ago. But I got a nice car because I had kids. And so I was like, I have to have a really safe, nice car. So I got this sweet, I don't know, mom car. I got a sweet mom car. It was like a black Volvo, whatever, that fits all the children. And these fucking peacocks have ripped the shit out of the hood. I mean, scratch marks all over the place. Oh, it's 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 awful. Like you have no, I mean, it's unbelievable what they did to it. And These $50 peacocks cost me so much money. Yeah. And then they started eating the barn cat food. Oh, look- that's really pisses Taylor off. He hates it when things eat the cat food. And I don't even like the cats, but it just makes it, it's just like when you have cat food out on your porch all day long. It's not all day. It just invites other animals that you don't want on your porch to think that that's their food. So the peacocks 
stopped eating their food, they stopped foraging, they stopped eating insects, they stopped hunting for snakes, and they just got fat on cat food <laughs> and bullying our cats. The best part was when you would be like, all right, are the peacocks around? No. Okay. I'm going to feed the cats really quietly so the peacocks don't hop up here. And you would literally like turn around, shut the door, and a peacock would be eating the cat food. And you're like, how the hell did that just happen? Yeah, they're like ninjas for cat food. And, you know, like all this stuff, it's just accumulative. It's like gaining momentum on pissing us off every day. And they, you know, they started sleeping on the roof at night, which was pretty cute the first time they did it. But we oh, had it was a, really cute to see a silhouette of a peacock at the very top of the roof. Yeah, we had a metal, we have a metal roof and it was so adorable, but then it wasn't adorable when in the middle of the night they would just start mosh pitting up on the roof or, you know, I don't know what they were doing, like tap Sliding, dancing. tap dancing. <laughs> and it would just wake us up. You know, if you have a small child, a baby, a one-year-old, two-year-old, and something wakes them up, I mean, especially if you're a mom, your mama bear instinct kicks in and it's like... Death to that animal. Yeah. Or if it's a human, you're going to get your ass kicked. So they were like just crossing every single boundary I can think of. Well, not only were they tap dancing on the roof, they were also shitting on the roof. Yeah. And you can't clean the roof. There's no cleaning the roof. It was so disgusting. And so... We had them for like two years and we were just putting up with them and trying to chase them away. I oh, think the final straw, they though, were really loud. They were really loud. And it wasn't like your normal peacock call. It was a female call. There were two hens. It was pleasant. I loved their loud calls. They were really cute. Yeah. But the final straw was um, we had, you know, like we hatched these baby turkeys and the moms laid eggs around our house. And then we have these cute little one day old babies at our house. And one day the peacocks just murdered they like, went savage it was like a gang war they just murdered <laughs> day-old innocent turkeys like pecked their eyes out it was horrible yeah and we we're like all right that's the final straw and so we set up a trap we caught them in a cat cage and we relocated them oh my god i completely forgot about this part yeah, like this was a peaceful compromise. Yeah, we caught them. We relocated them. We kept them in a coop, like, I don't know, a mile down the road uh, for, you know, another. I think we kept them in the coop for two weeks to be like, this is your new house. And then when we let them out, we I think they disappeared for about a day. And we were like, well, fuck it. If they disappear, they disappear. And then I'll never forget. We went to bed that night and I woke up the next morning and I walked onto the porch and I looked down the driveway and those two girls were literally just like coming back for the cat food. You can see them like quarter mile away. So breakfast time. And yeah, they and so we just couldn't get rid of them. They honestly thought our yard and our house was theirs. And so this was a good opportunity for me to teach Scout about harvesting an animal. She was probably like two years old at the time, and she was really into it. She was pissed off. What when whenever the baby turkey got that. killed? She was three, four. Okay, three years old. Whenever the baby turkeys got killed, she was like, "Fuck those peacocks, let's kill them." <laughs> and I was so proud of her. And so I was always in team, let's kill them. Katie was opposite team. She was in team, let's coddle them. Let's. Let's just convince, let's just shower them in kindness and ask them to leave. And then when Scout joined my team, 
It got intense. It was like pure democracy. We immediately went and got a 22 Magnum rifle. The incorrect size for us. No, I mean, that's a powerful gun. That'll kill a deer if you shoot it right. So what happened? So we... I was just like, I picked that gun because I didn't want, I didn't want it to be scary for a scout. I wanted like a softer, quieter shooting rifle because this was going to be our first time to like be right next to a rifle. And we got on the porch and this peacock was like a hundred yards away and I pulled back to shoot it and I shot it. I was aiming for the head, which is very small target, especially at that distance with no scope. And it like hit something and the peacock did like a triple backflip gainer in the air and then fell that and then landed on, you know, and ran away. I'm like, All right, scout, that's it. Peacock's done, but it wasn't done. Later that night, it came up to the porch to eat cat food and it had a freaking <laughs> hole in its beak and the, <laughs> it blew a hole directly through its beak. And so it's like beak was all fucked up. And so then Taylor was like, all right, this animal is actually a badass. It has a hole in its beak and it's bleeding all over the place, but we're going to let it live. It's fine. It can live here now. It's yeah. a badass. It earned my respect. But then, you know, back to old habits, didn't really learn its lesson. Only a couple weeks later, something Shit else horrible all over happened. The place. Killed another baby turkey. So, all right, Scout, let's do it again. So we got the rifle and this time it's like, can't shoot it in the head, too small of a target. So... Got pretty close, like 25 yards and um, shot, and it went through its back. I mean, I was aiming for the spinal cord, but I think it went a little bit off. In through one side, out through the other. Entrails dangling out. That thing just ran under the house, and it's like, all right, Scout, let's just give it a little bit of space so it can have a peaceful, calm death. This thing is done. There was a massive blood trail. Tried to shoot it in a way that Produce minimal pain, minimal suffering, minimal stress. Teach got a lesson about humane harvest. And 48 hours later, nothing. No sign of that peacock. So went under the house to go retrieve it. It wasn't there. So I thought, all right, well, maybe a scavenger got it and is eating it, which is, that's cool. It, that's like really good energy for a scavenger to eat. That thing will be a badass. But then it showed up on the porch. <laughs> what the heck well and then we named it no shoot yeah no shoot it got shot twice like i mean this is tupac shakur in <laughs> real life and it survived and it made it stronger yeah it was insane you it can't was nuts. it was insane this thing that's ability to regenerate its body and its organs and its beak was just like we should be injecting peacock stem cells into all of our injuries it never looked the same after that like it's coloring kind of just faded and it well, was a sad life for that thing but it it crushed life i mean yeah. it, it's a jungle and animal cat food and maybe it's the cat maybe the cat food is what caused it to regenerate so quickly but um you know again just a couple weeks went by same thing this is like years of just pissing us off like i think we're pretty good at just letting go of things that are out of our hands and just trusting that nature has a path and a purpose and everything's going to turn out the way it was supposed to, but we couldn't do that with the peacocks. I feel like I've blocked all of it. I don't even remember how its final death occurred. Well, I remember. So Katie and Scout. <gasps> I do remember. We're gone. No, we weren't. We were just in the 
living room. Yeah. You thought we were gone. <clears throat> Maybe I thought they were gone. And I, I got the the appropriate gun, which is a shotgun, 12-gauge shotgun, a little overkill, but that that will do the job instantly. I and think it was on that roof. Because I remember I looked over, I heard no, a shot, and I looked else. over, and it fell off the This was another time, I think, This was shot with it. a paintball gun. It was <laughs> sleeping on the roof right above, right above Scout's room. And you shot it off, and I remember, like, very clearly it rolling off the house and landing on the ground and just being like, you are some psychotic son of a bitch. It was, it was pretty brutal, but it, again, and, and it was on the ground kind of stunned. And so I went and ran and got an ax to, um, to cut its head off. So, you know, it could just like end its life right there. No suffering. And the second I walked up to it with my hatchet, it looked at me in the eyes and jumped up and sprinted off. <laughs> it was insane. Yeah. And so finally it met its maker. It's now in a better place. Hopefully it's shitting on really nice cars in heaven and eating really good cat food. For sure. In heaven. Sacred, holy cat food. But I shot it with a, a shotgun and it was immediately instant You death. finally learned what Not, kind of gun to use. No, that wasn't that. It was just that I was trying to be having a bonding moment with Scout and doing it with a caliber of rifle that would not traumatize her it's really scary for kids to be right next to rifles getting shot so especially if the animal pops back up no she loved that it was like a video game she doesn't know what video games are i was like duck hunt nintendo okay anyways the much respect to no shoot no shoot was just an absolute legend of rome ranch and the R.I.P. most badass hard to kill resilient and inherently regenerative animal that's maybe ever lived. Mm-hmm. So we miss you, no shoot. Mm. If I could have, I would have just trapped you one more time and just shipped you to Costa Rica and had you let go in the jungle. But COVID. <laughs> COVID happened. Um. Anyways, that's that's our peacock story. So I hope you don't hate us. I hope you don't cancel us. Well, the worst part about it, which we didn't even really talk about, is just that No Shoot also had a sister. And you did all those terrible things to her in front of her sister. That's terrible. I mean, I don't understand. Katie would have just wanted this animal to piss her off every day for the rest of her life. <laughs> I I don't know. I uh, Her sister was a sweetheart, but they were her frenemies. I mean, she also pooped on the porch. They would have eaten each other. They were just waiting for one to drop so that the other could be dominant. Yeah. Matriarch. The beta female of the whole entire ranch. They were probably just trying to replace you. Mm. <laughs> Move in and sleep in the bed with me. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the peacock story. I don't want to leave people on a really sad note. So here's one more story. Oh, it's terrible. Here's one more story. Um, we do these Thanksgiving turkey harvests. And they're really beautiful field harvests where families come out. It's like mom, kids, sometimes grandparents, grandkids. It's like multi-generation coming out to harvest their own Thanksgiving turkey a couple of days before Thanksgiving. The bird's never frozen. P families catch these live birds, and then they get to harvest it themselves. So we have a non-penetrating bolt stunner. They get to pull the trigger, 
and they get to cut the throat and then we teach them how to defeather it and eviscerate it and then clean it. It's just like so beautiful. It's such an amazing, powerful way to connect with your food. And oh man. Do you remember whenever the, do you, do, do you remember when the, uh, whenever I was doing the demonstration and that freaking kid fainted? Yeah, that was crazy. That was nuts. I was like, do I keep going? Do I go and help the child? Is he alive? One of one, this kid saw blood and just straight up eyes rolled to the back of his head. And there's like 60, 70 people there. And he just falls and eats it. Super awkward. <laughs> and no one really knew what was going on. But, you know, that happens with people, I guess. Yeah. So, but this particular moment this was a really positive story because we were going through this process and there was a sweet family who came out and there's this sweet little girl she was like seven or eight years old and her family's up they catch the turkey she's just really nervous like kind of freaking out doesn't really want to kill it but knows it's important like something in her is pushing her out of her comfort zone so her dad pulls the trigger and um, cuts the throat. And then whenever the blood is flowing from her turkey, guess what she does? What? She just straight up goes over to the turkey and starts drinking the blood. Like opens her mouth or gets a yes. cup? She just drank it from the turkey's neck. Like while, like sucked it out? Like I mean, a it's vampire? gravity fed, so it's just dripping on the ground. And she just put her hand, caught it finger started drinking it that's nice and it was like so sweet but it was out of the blue you know i had to do a triple take <laughs> people were like what the f is happening and what was happening was this girl was connecting to her ancestral legacy she was connecting with that animal and she was being a wild human being Here's a good one for the podcast. I have never killed a turkey. You haven't? That's embarrassing. I've never killed a turkey or a chicken. I've never killed anything. You've never killed a peacock? I've never killed a peacock. You've been complicit in killing peacocks. Mm. Just like how every time you buy meat never from the grocery a store. Do you remember when we complicit. had to kill the cat? This is not an episode about killing animals. Okay. <laughs> Or not killing animals. But okay. This is just, this is about connecting with your food, this story. And it was just so badass to see this little girl do that. And I spoke to her dad. I ran into her dad like eight months later. Mm -hmm. And he said that changed his daughter's life. And that she doesn't stop talking about it. And that they'll never eat another store-bought turkey. Mm, that's that's isn't that so cool. Yeah. It's like, it's like their new family tradition. But I was so proud of that girl. Yeah, it's pretty badass. I hope Scout will drink turkey blood one day. Me too. If we raise her right. But um, okay, well that that's that's all. I think if there's just one thing that we'll leave people with, you know, these stories from the ranch and these lessons from the ranches, hey, I hope you guys don't misinterpret our peacock story as cruel and inhumane, because that was like there was a lot of emotions. A lot of emotional scarring and trauma and history, years of it baked into this very complex relationship. Can I say that I loved No Shoot? For sure. And I also killed No Shoot? 
Yeah, she didn't belong here anymore. Yeah. She needed to go. But it's not an interesting perspective, the human capacity to love something and also to take its life and to raise something and nourish something, but then to eat that same thing. There's like a lot of conflicting emotions. Are there any other animals that love the thing that they're eating? No. Like that have the emotion of love, not just like I love to taste you. I don't think so. So I just want to be clear that I I love No Shoot and the Peacocks, and I'm glad they were on our ranch. And they were a really beautiful part of our story here and good memories forever. But then I'll also say that poultry is just kind of a badass animal. Again, it just does it just has so much positive potential, like debugging your pastures, scratching at capped soil, losing it up, fertilizing, eating chicken scraps. They're hardy. They're so cool. I mean, they'll even eat ticks, they'll eat um black widows. Does anything eat a black widow? No, I read I looked that up. Birds Sometimes a bird will eat a black widow and then it gets extremely sick. And mm. if it doesn't die, it it learned its lesson and it won't do it again. Mm. So, but you know, they'll harass snakes, which we don't want them to kill the snakes, but we certainly don't want rattlesnakes yeah. crawling in our boots at night on our porch. Yeah. Just toads. Just toads. So go get yourself some chickens that add a lot of value to your life. And I think if you have teenager kids, having your teenagers raise a chicken's like such a valuable exercise because they're really good role models. They go to bed really early. <laughs> they work all day long. They make you food. And then they don't they go to sleep when the sun goes down. Yeah, they wake up early and then they don't stay up all night getting in trouble. It's true. So, you know, if that's how your kid is, especially if it's a teenager, that's a really good kid. All right. Anything else? for you for today i don't think so i think that wraps it up wraps up the turkey wraps poultry. up the poultry episode episode well until next time i hope you guys enjoyed hearing our poultry stories and i hope you don't have nightmares and i hope no shoot doesn't haunt you <laughs> okay oh boy if it's not already hard enough to record a podcast i mean Doing it with your wife, your multi-lifetime partner, if you're down with reincarnation, well, that's pretty much the hardest thing because obviously in that episode, some things came up. We might need to seek a little help, get a little counseling, some therapy about no shooting the peacocks, but that's about as real as it gets, unscripted people. So I hope you enjoyed this very revealing episode of Where Hope Grows, stories from Rome Ranch, which that's stories from our ranch in Fredericksburg, Texas. None of this would be possible. You wouldn't even have the opportunity of hearing this audio without the manifestation of force of nature. Force of nature is helping bring this podcast to you. So as always, if you appreciate what we're doing, please head over to forceofnature.com and check out their amazing selection of meat. You don't have to eat poultry. If you never want to eat poultry again, they have other meat. Um, I'll leave you with one last calling, one last ask. Please 
subscribe to this podcast. Please give it a five-star review. Please rate it, comment. That helps us reach more people and connect individuals like you to land, two stories from land, two stories from land stewards, which is the most important thing that we can do to remember that we are from Mother Earth. We are a part of this system. So hope you enjoyed this podcast. Until next time, farewell. <laughs>